Hello, welcome to our podcast lecture series in PS202, Introduction to Political Theory. In this episode, we will take up medieval political thought, more particularly the works of St. Thomas Aquinas, namely on kingship and Summa Theologica. Medieval political thought means the political thought which originated in the medieval period. It means roughly from 5th century Anno Domini to 15th century Anno Domini. In the medieval period in Europe, two political thinkers were well known for their political philosophy. They were Thomas Aquinas and Dante Alighieri. In the medieval period in Europe, Christianity influenced the society. It influenced political thought also. There was no freedom of thinking. All thoughts and actions should be according to the teachings of the church. Religion influenced normal, secular life. In fact, it was not the religion which influenced the thoughts of people, but it was the religious leaders who influenced them. They influenced the people for their own benefit and for the benefit of the church. They influenced them to protect the possession and wealth of the church. In the name of God and religion, they influenced the general public. They said that the church will decide everything regarding their body as well as spirit. The church wanted to influence all aspects of life of people. According to them, everything including arts, literature, and political thought should be according to the Bible. But the Holy Bible is not about the arts or literature or political thought. Then the church leaders said that they will guide the people according to the Bible. They interpreted the Bible to increase their wealth and power and to influence people. They guided the people according to their wishes, whims, and fancies. The secularists were against this. They said that God had given freedom to all people. It is the freedom to choose between good or bad. It should not be under the influence or fear of church people. Man must use his freedom to understand the truth. They said that God does not want to help the church people. Instead, they narrated the idea that God will help the people through the church. Secularists wanted, however, freedom of thought. They said that the church should look only after the matters of spirit. They said that the king should look after worldly matter. Thus, there was a conflict between the secularists and the church people. Eventually, the life of the ordinary people became very bad. St. Thomas Aquinas and Dante Alighieri lived during this period of conflict between the church and the secular people. They wanted to separate religion from politics. The important features of the period can be summarized as follows. First, monarchy was instituted. Monarchy was considered as the best form of government. Divine origin of kingship was generally accepted. The king was considered as the agent of God on earth. A monarch could be hereditary, elected, or nominated by the grace of God. 
Second, universalism spread. Universalism was preached during this period. People believe in the existence of a universal society. The fundamental feature of universalism is the belief and faith in the spiritual salvation of humankind as a whole. Third, temporal and spiritual authorities coexisted. The emperor was a worldly agent and the pope was considered as a spiritual agent. Both of them coexisted with certain level of competition as well as cooperation. Both were considered as unavoidable for the society. Scholasticism and the study of pre-Christian values became prominent also during the medieval period. These concepts include Aristotelianism, were studied by scholars. The clout of papacy increased considerably. Fifth, the church and the empire were in constant competition with each other. During this period, the Christian church increased its influence in the society, and it became something parallel to the monarchy, wielding almost equal powers, if not more. The church considered themselves as superior as the Pope was considered as the representative of God on earth. He could use his power to excommunicate the king also. On the other hand, the king considered himself as the representative of God on earth, having power to rule. Sixth, law was also emerging during the medieval period. In the Middle Ages, however, the law was something personal and habitual. It was never national or territorial. Nobody knew the origin of law. Everybody accepted it as it is. Nobody questioned it. They were considered permanent and eternal. Seventh, the concept of sovereignty was non-existent. There was no concept of sovereignty in the Middle Ages. People follow the moral order. Church authority and the authority of the king coexisted. Both these checked each other. There were no concept of a sovereign authority which was supreme in internal or external matters. It was also during this time that feudalism was born. The fundamental characteristics of the social order of the Middle Ages was feudalism. It affected all the people or classes. Few the lords owned large tracts of land which they gave to the tenants for cultivation. The terms and conditions were fixed by the landlord according to his whims and fancies. Perhaps the only working class was the farmers and laborers. The brunt of economic production fell solely on the shoulders of the workers. The other classes remained exploitative in nature. And finally, the theory of two swords also became popular during the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, the Church Fathers put forward a theory that the human life consists of a combination of spiritual and temporal aspects. This spiritual aspect should be looked after by the Church. The King can look after only the temporal or worldly aspects. Out of these two, the spiritual aspects are superior in nature. The principal idea behind this concept is the biblical verse, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. The church thought 
that the soul is superior to the body. At this point, let us discuss briefly the life of St. Thomas Aquinas before we proceed with his main works, namely on kingship and Summa Theologica. Thomas Aquinas was born in Sicily in a noble family. He was attracted to the Dominican order of priests of the Catholic Church. He lived during a time when the church developed into a large spiritual organization. Feudalism almost started to decline and nationalism started to develop. Aristotelianism, scholasticism, and nationalism were the key features of the times. The church needed someone who will amalgamate the teachings of the church with a rising nationalism and intellectual endeavor. Thomas Aquinas did exactly that. He was able to provide a sensible combination of the various aspirations of the people of his times without compromising their positions. He was influenced not only by Christian teachings but also by Aristotle, the Stoics, and Cicero. Summa Theologica was his famous work. The methods followed by Thomas Aquinas was very similar to that of Greek thinkers. He posed a basic question and explained it presented it with various options and described the problems with each answer. This solution was always based on the Christian philosophy and values. Finally, he would reach at his own conclusion to the problems. St. Thomas Aquinas is known for his theory of law and justice. He was the greatest European philosopher of the Middle Ages. He was a great leader of the church also. He was a declared saint. He was born in a noble family in Sicily. Thomas Aquinas was very close to kings and popes. Thus, he was very close to both spiritual authority as well as secular authority. But during his times, the pope had power over spiritual aspects as well as administration of the country. The political philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas was a combination of scholasticism philosophy of Aristotle and Universalism. Scholasticism is the intellectual tradition of 13th century Europe. It had two characteristics. Firstly, it held that the church is infallible and unquestionable. Secondly, it tried to combine faith and reason. It wanted to combine both theology and science. According to scholasticism, all branches of science must be in tune with theology. The Roman Empire must be ruled according to the wishes of the Pope. If there is a conflict between the Holy Roman Empire and the Pope, the Pope should win. Universalism is the Christian concept that all human souls will be saved. Salvation is for all. All the three streams of scholasticism Aristotelianism and Universalism converged in Aquinas. Therefore, Aquinas is called Christianized Aristotle or Sainted Aristotle of the Middle Ages. The intellectual tradition of Middle Ages can be summarized as scholasticism. It was a grand combination of philosophy and theology. Aquinas was a follower of scholasticism. However, he gave prominence to theology than philosophy. He gave importance to religion, which, according to him, was above every other concept. Therefore, Aquinas said that in case of a conflict between the church and the state, 
the church should be hailed victorious. According to Aquinas, monarchy is the best form of government. However, the monarch is bound by the laws of land as well as the divine law. He is not above divine law. These were fundamental characteristics of the Middle Ages. Aquinas was of the opinion that there is a higher nature beyond this worldly nature. He differed from Aristotle in this respect. For Aristotle, this world was final and definite. According to Aquinas, this world is only superficial and only a passing stage of the life of man. Aquinas followed the Aristotelian principle that man is a social animal. Man cannot live without a society around him. Therefore, the state is something natural to man. It is embedded in his nature. It is not something artificial. He did not follow the idea that the state is the result of fall of man because of his sins. The ultimate objective of the state is good life through coexistence and mutual help and service. His idea was similar to the Aristotelian concept of the purpose of state. The purpose of the state is promotion of good life and happiness. But there was a fundamental difference between Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas in this respect. Aristotle based his idea on a society which is purely secular in nature. But according to Thomas Aquinas, the society is one in which both the secular and spiritual authorities coexisted side by side. That was the need of the times of Aquinas. However, Aquinas agreed with Aristotle that man indeed is a political being. Man became perfect in the state. The world is not created because of man's sin. It was not created when man was sent out of the Garden of Eden. The state is not the product of human sin, but it is a positive product. It is the embodiment of reason. The state is necessary to provide the conditions of good life. While saying this, Aquinas also says that the church also is necessary to secure the eternal good. He says that the church is the highest human institution. It is not the rival of the state. But the church is the completion and perfection of the state. The ultimate purpose of the state is to help people to lead a happy and good life. The state makes them moral in that way. It makes men virtuous. The state was not a necessary evil, but the purpose of the state is not just maintenance of law and order. It is something beyond that. It is a great social organization which covers all aspects of life. However, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, the church is superior to the state. Aquinas did not consider any form of government as truly and absolutely good. It depends on the functions it performs. It is a question of the level of virtue and goodness promoted by the rule. In the classification of governments, Aquinas followed Aristotle. He believed in the normal forms of monarchy, aristocracy, and polity, as well as their perverted forms. According to Aquinas, a good government is the one which promotes goodness 
happiness and virtue of the people. It must provide the people with good administration, promote justice, promote the good life. The ultimate objective of government is the promotion of moral welfare of the people. The following is an enlistment of the functions of a good government according to St. Thomas Aquinas. First, promote unity. Second, promote common goodness instead of individual goodness. Third, to remove hindrances to good life of the citizens. Fourth, look after the poor. Fifth, promote right living and virtuous life. Sixth, promote peace and happiness and the conditions for the same. Seventh, protection and defense of the citizens. Eight, maintenance of civic amenities like roads and bridges. Nine, maintain a just tax regime. Ten, introduce and maintain a sound system of coinage, weightage, and measures. And lastly, to reward and promote those who do good. Aquinas' concept of sovereignty is worth special mention because he gave importance to the people. He said that from a political angle of view, the source of sovereignty is the people from the theological point of view. The source of sovereignty is nothing but God. According to him, sovereignty is indivisible. It is the source of positive law. A sovereign cannot give a bad law. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, the state and the church should work in cooperation with each other. However, the church is supreme over the state. The church has authority in spiritual matters, also while the state has authority only in worldly matters. In the event of a conflict between the church and the state, the former must prevail. The church can even excommunicate a prince. The state must work under the guidance of the church. However, this authority is quite indirect rather than direct. The interference of the church in the matters of the state should be the minimum. The ruler is subject to the authority of the state only to a limited extent. Aquinas borrowed a lot from Aristotle in this respect as regards concept of ethics. But there was a fundamental difference between the two. For Aristotle, ethics concerned with worldly life. But for Aquinas, ethics is concerned with salvation and the ultimate spiritual happiness, which can be achieved through a good, worldly life. Concept of Faith and Reason According to Aquinas, faith and reason are equally important. Both these powers emanate from God. Therefore, they are divine. But out of the two, faith is more important. This concept of amalgamation of both these antagonistic concepts into one is a great achievement of St. Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas on Law According to Aquinas, there are four kinds of laws. They are First, eternal law Second, natural law Third, divine law And fourth, human law. Eternal law is the mind of God. It is the reason existing in the mind of God. The whole universe is governed according to it. 
Eternal law regulates the heavenly and earthly spheres. It controls animate and inanimate worlds. Natural law is the reflection of the divine law. It is reflected in human beings. Because of natural law, men want to live in a society with others. Divine law consists of direct revelation by God through saints or through Bible. Human law is made from natural law. It is made according to natural law and it is subordinate to natural law. Human law is not in conflict with natural law. Human law is based on human reason. It made for the common good and it is made for it only. Human law is published for the knowledge of all people. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, monarchy is the best form of government. Only monarchy could promote unity. It is natural that the superior must rule over the inferior. It is also good for the inferior to be ruled by the superior. This is the reason why Aquinas supported slavery to some extent. The ultimate function of the monarch is bringing virtuous life and happiness to the people. It is his duty to provide the people with peace and order and all material well-being for the attainment of a happy life. The monarch is under the supreme guidance of the natural law. In case of a conflict between the monarch and papacy, it should be the latter which must prevail. Aquinas on Slavery Aquinas supported slavery on the ground that the superior must rule over the inferior. But there is a fundamental difference between Aristotle and Aquinas in the case of support for slavery. Aquinas supported slavery on certain religious grounds. According to him, it is a remedy to wash off sins. By saying so, Aquinas took a careful position not to disturb the then social setup. On the other hand, Aristotle believed that the rule of superiors over the inferiors is not a product of any religious tenet or dogmatic principle. Rather, it is a product of inherent inequality in human existence. It can be said, therefore, that Thomas Aquinas was a true representative of the Middle Ages. Within the intellectual confinement of the church, he could remain a liberal thinker. His contribution to political thought and the then society was multifaceted. Aquinas is best known for his classification of laws. The contribution of St. Thomas Aquinas can be summarized as follows. First, on the idea of democracy. Aquinas said that the ultimate authority of the sovereign comes from the people, viewed from a political angle. Knowingly or unknowingly, St. Thomas Aquinas was paving the seeds of democracy. Second, on the idea of welfare state. According to Aquinas, the functions of the state were good and virtuous life. It was expected to provide the citizens with all amenities which would help them to lead a happy life. On the revival of Aristotelianism. With St. Thomas Aquinas, the principles of Aristotle began to be reread in the West. It was rediscovery. It was a new beginning, long lost during the Dark Ages, perpetrated by the Church. 
By doing so, Aquinas was correcting a mistake of the ages. Political philosophy could move forward, therefore. On the revival of scholasticism. The best part of scholasticism was that it was a combination of fate and reason. It brought reason at par with fate. It became easy of the later thinkers to doff fate in favor of reason in, a, in their thinking towards a secular and egalitarian society and state. Aquinas built the foundation for that. On the ideas of constitutional government, Aquinas revived the concept of a state and government based on a definite constitution. Ideas of a constitution were long lost with Aristotle. Aquinas revived the concept without antagonizing the powerful church entities. Aquinas also made the classification of laws, the classical law being an example. The classical example of the diplomatic moves by Aquinas to bring up human and natural law at a time when papacy was at its powerful best. He did that in a systematic manner. Aquinas also theorized about the basis of the state. And like the belief of the church, Aquinas said that the state is not the result of the fall of men. He did not follow the principles of contractual origin. He said that it is a natural institution for the welfare of the people. And finally, he also inspired the reconciliation of the church and the state. This is the most significant contribution of St. Thomas Aquinas. He could strike a balance between the church and the state in a manner characteristic of his philosophy. By doing so, he did not antagonize the people of the church. He in fact lifted the concept of a secular and constitutional state. At this juncture, let us proceed with the work of St. Thomas Aquinas entitled On Kingship, or more popularly known as the Deregno. The Regno introduces itself as a work concerned with the origin of a kingdom and what pertains to the king's office. The treatise, he writes, is in keeping with my calling and office and has been undertaken after I considered with myself what I should undertake that would be worthy of my royal majesty. Aquinas then begins the treatise not by stating that his aim is to offer something worthy of the king of Cyprus, but rather that he intends something worthy of royal majesty. The treatise will show kingship in its highest form and it implicitly invites the king of Cyprus to aim at this form. And, as is evidenced by Aquinas' reference to him who is king of kings and lord of lords, by whom kings reign, this form is inseparable from the rule of the Christian God, who is a king above all gods. Chapter 1 of the Diregno begins with a series of ennobling observations about the character of kingship. A king, writes Aquinas, is one who rules over the community of a city or province and for the common good. Kingship is the best form of government because it best fulfills the end of government, which is the good and well-being of a community united in fellowship. Kingship can fulfill this end because its nature is ruled by one, a fact that allows for the unity of peace necessary for direction and movement 
toward this end. This argument, asserts Aquinas, is supported both by revelation. He interprets Ezekiel 37 verse 24 to mean that there should be one who rules, and by nature, for those things are best which are most natural, for in every case nature operates for the best. Because Aquinas is not blind to the apparent difficulties facing kingship, he moves from a consideration of the ideal to a consideration of two practical objections facing that ideal. The most significant of these objections is that kingship allows for the possibility of tyranny, which Aquinas recognizes as the worst form of government. Secondly, men living under a king are often reluctant to exert themselves for the common good, no doubt supposing that whatever they do for the common good will not benefit them but someone else. Tyranny, writes Aquinas, is the worst and the most unjust form of government, in part because it leads to few virtuous men. This effect of tyranny stems from the aims of the tyrant, who, because of a concern for his own private good, is led to despise the common good. A king who is a tyrant is a man who rules without reason according to the lusts of his own soul, and so is no different from a beast. Because the tyrant is ruled by fear, he suspects good man rather than bad and is always afraid of another's virtue, leading him to oppress his objects and subjects in bodily and spiritual matters. In complete opposition to the ideal king who unifies what is good, a tyrant allows for the unification of evil, a unification that allows evil to do its greatest harm. In other words, the possibility of tyranny is the most significant objection to kingship. For if corrupted, a kingship will become a tyranny, and a tyranny is the worst form of government. Aquinas responds to this objection by indicating his willingness to turn away from a wholehearted commitment to the ideal form of government. We ought, he argues, to avoid the alternative from which great danger is more likely to follow. Yet surprisingly, and against all expectations, even by these criteria, Aquinas continues to maintain that kingship is the best form of government, arguing that it is rule by many, and not rule by one, that admits the greatest possibility of tyranny. And even on those rare occasions, the tyranny does arise out of kingship, this tyranny will be less extreme than any that arises from other forms of government. In the end, therefore, if one man rules, he will more often attend to the common good, or if he turns aside from the task of securing the common good, it does not immediately follow that he will set about oppressing his subjects and become an extreme tyrant, which, as we have shown above, is the worst kind of bad government. The perils which arise out of government by many are therefore more to be avoided than those which arise out of government by one. Kingship, then, is endorsed by two arguments. 
It is indoors because it is the best form of government, and it is indoors because it is the least dangerous when compared with the other alternatives. Yet if this is simply the case, why does Aquinas immediately turn to a discussion of how to best limit the dangers of tyranny? Why does he write that the king's power must be restricted? And why does he suggest that the people should have the power to choose, depose, and or restrain a king if his rule becomes overly tyrannical? In other words, if the unity of kingship provides the best and safest form of government, why does Aquinas recommend restricting the king's power by dividing part of it among the least unified political class? Aquinas forces us to reconsider the nature of kingship. By arguing that the unity of kingship provides the best and safest form of government and recommending the division of the rule's power, Aquinas implicitly points out that the fulfillment of his definition of kingship will found its profound consummation. Through kingship may be the best form of government, but practically speaking, almost all kings, to a greater and lesser degree, rule in the manner of tyrants. The implicit argument that almost all kings rule in the manner of tyrants is reinforced by chapter 8, having shown that it is the king's task to seek the good of the community, Aquinas insists on the importance of considering what a suitable reward for a good king might be. Such an investigation should be undertaken, he argues, because the king's duty would seem unduly onerous if some good personal to himself were not provided in return. But this point raises a new issue. What is it about kingship that makes it unduly onerous? Thus, not the activity of procuring the common good bring pleasure to the practitioner? Is not virtue its own reward? If the king needs a reward apart from the proper and prudential fulfillment of his position, it would seem that the king of chapter 8 is not virtuous. He does not work toward the common good for the sake of the common good or nobility, but rather for the sake of a reward. And if a reward is not presented, The practice of such work can only be buttressed by an honorous sense of duty. Once again, virtuous or through kingship is shown to be nearly non-existent. It is fitting then that the question of the reward of the king is preceded by a chapter devoted to the possibility of regicide in which Aquinas ratifies the deposing and killing of a tyrannical king. Aquinas' discussion of reward, therefore, is the proverbial carrot that follows the stick. His political teaching revolves around the reality that nearly all men rule with a view to increasing their power. The reward first suggested in chapter 8 is the reward of honor and glory. This reward, notes Aquinas, is endorsed by Cicero and Aristotle, with the former arguing that the rule or the ruler of the city should be flattered with glory, and the latter asserting that the desire to seek their own good is present in the souls of all men. If therefore the prince were not content with honor and glory, he would seek pleasure and riches, and so would fall to plundering and injuring his subjects. The tradition of political philosophy like Aquinas recognizes tyranny 
as a danger coeval with political life. In response, they attempt to circumvent the danger that is coupled by tyranny and toward the public pleasures associated with honor and glory. Aquinas, however, is not wholly satisfied with this project. He believes that this reward will not be enough to restrain a ruler from becoming a tyrant. Honor and glory will not prevent the possibility of tyranny because there is nothing in human affairs more fragile than these rewards for they depend upon human opinion and there is nothing more changeable in the life of mankind. Indeed, Aquinas suggests that the reward of honor and glory actually creates more dangers than it prevents. This reward, he argues, tends to create a desire for glory that leads men to seek immediate glory in the commence of war and to fall into the vices of hypocrisy and dissimulation. For desiring glory, many pretend to be virtuous. Aquinas goes even further. Not only can the desire for glory lead to tyranny, it also takes away from the greatness of soul, for it destroys the liberty of spirit, which ought above all to be the goal of the great souled man. And nothing is more fitting to a prince who is appointed to accomplish good purposes than greatness of soul. In other words, the suggested reward of ancient political philosophy not only fails to sufficiently prevent tyranny, it also threatens to destroy good government as practiced by the great-souled man. Yet here we are, led into confusion, for Aquinas' complaint seems to ignore the reality that the magnanimous man is distinguishable by his desire for honor. As Aristotle puts it, someone who is a great-souled then is especially concerned with honors and acts of dishonor. Such a person will be moderately pleased at honors that are great and come from serious people. He takes it to be the greatest thing, for power and wealth are chosen on account of honor. According to Aristotle, the desire for honor justified, for it is the proper reward of virtue. What is great in its virtue would seem to belong to someone who is great-souled, Honor is the price for virtue and is allotted to those who are good. In other words, it is appropriate for the magnanimous men to desire honor because they desire it in relation to their worthiness. Understood as a reward that belongs to virtue as a matter related to justice. The virtue of the great-souled man cannot be destroyed by his concern for honor because his concern for honor is governed by his belief that true honor must be grounded in the recognition of virtue. At first glance, therefore, Aquinas' position does not appear to be in full agreement with that of Aristotle, for his argument that glory will corrupt this great-souled man indicates that this man will actually be more concerned with the opinions of others than they are with virtue. Yet in Summa Theologica, it seems that Aquinas is in agreement with Aristotle's account of magnanimity. For here, he writes that, We must conclude that the proper matter of magnanimity is great honor, 
and that a magnanimous man tends to such things as are deserving of honor. The reason for this discrepancy can only be discovered by returning to Aristotle's own account, which indicates that Aristotle is not completely satisfied with a magnanimous man. Aristotle's conclusion that what is due to the magnanimous man is honor implicitly points to the difficulty of the magnanimous man actually receiving what is his due. The magnanimous man, he writes, will be moderately pleased at honors that are great and come from serious people, taking them as heating the mark of what is due, or even less than is due, since there could be no honor worth of complete virtue, though he will accept them nonetheless, since they have nothing greater to offer him. Because Aristotle's great soul man cares about the quality of those men doing the honoring, he will have utter disdain for honor that comes from random people or is for minor matters, since it is not this of which he is worthy. In other words, since the dignity of honor depends as much on the man doing the honoring as the man receiving it, the magnanimous man cannot be honored in the proper fashion, for none are as great as he. Thus, the life of the magnanimous man cannot be wholly satisfying, for he both lives in the knowledge that he deserves the highest of honors and views all the honors that he is given with contempt. Aristotle's discussion of the magnanimous man appears to lead to the conclusion that the morally virtuous life in and of itself is incomplete. Even if the magnanimous man acts virtuously solely for the sake of virtue, he cannot or should not be satisfied with the reality. Although Aristotle indicates a deficiency in the ability of honor to fulfill the proper reward of the magnanimous man, this deficiency does not necessarily point to the corruption of the magnanimous man. Although honor may be the greatest of external goods, the magnanimous man cares little for external goods. In the same vein, Aquinas teaches that the magnanimous man does not seek honor and glory as something great, as if they were a sufficient reward for virtue. Thus, although the magnanimous man is conscious of the fact that he is not able to be properly honored, this reality does not threaten to inhibit his pursuit of virtue. For the good of virtue is far more important to him than the external good of honor. Yet this apparent solution ignores Aquinas' claim that the reward of glory threatens to corrupt the magnanimous man. The problem caused by this claim can only finally be resolved when one notes that it is made within the context of Aquinas' realist approach to kingship, which, as we have shown, teaches that nearly all kings rule in the manner of tyrants. Properly understood, when in its context then, the discussion of the magnanimous man serves to remind the reader that such a man will likely not be ruler. To approach politics with the presumption that the magnanimous man will rule is only increase the possibility of tyranny. Aquinas' approach to kingship is inseparable from his concern for the problem that tyranny poses for political life. He said, given that so few achieve true virtue, therefore, 
it would seem more tolerable to choose as a ruler one who is at least restrained from avert wrongdoing by his fear of the judgment of men. Since true kingship and false kingship can be almost impossible to distinguish, and since the latter is more likely than the former, prudence demands that we plan for the latter. Aquinas then, in opposition to the tradition of ancient political philosophy, appears to orient politics in a way that effectively lowers its sides. Politics should not be concerned with developing the best kind of government. It should be concerned with preventing the worst. Put another way, although Aquinas believes that kingship is the best form of government, he thinks that it is highly unlikely, if not impossible, for any man to rule as a king in the true sense. Almost every kingly rule is really an extreme or moderate version of tyranny. Therefore, by restricting the definition of kingship to an almost unreachable standard, Aquinas is able to preserve the argument that kingship is the form of government least likely to fall into tyranny. The tyranny would be less extreme than that arising from other forms of government. Only a true king would rule in a fashion conducive to peaceful unity and the common good, and such a king would rarely fall into tyranny. Aquinas' argument, therefore, provides an account of politics dependent on a low view of man's nature, while at the same time preserving the ancient tradition's more idealistic presentation. The Theocratic Solution Aquinas' attempt to simultaneously preserve the ideal while recommending a lower foundation for politics depends on a turn to the Christian God. In response to the problem of magnanimity as presented by Aristotle, Aquinas uses theology to provide a unique avenue of escape. On the question of whether magnanimity is about honors, he replies accordingly, magnanimity is about honors in the sense that a man strives to do what is deserving of honor, yet not so as to think much of the honor accorded by men. In other words, Aquinas leaves open the possibility that the magnanimous man will be honored by God. The reward offered by the tradition of ancient political philosophy is replaced with the eternal reward that is given by God. It can therefore truly be said that honor and glory are the rewards of a king. For what worldly and passing honor can resemble that honor by which a man becomes a citizen of the kingdom of God and a member of God's household, and through which he is numbered among the children of God and attained with Christ to the inheritance of a heavenly kingdom? The magnanimous man, the ideal ruler, is now able to receive proper reward because he will be honored by one who is greater than he. This honor ultimately takes the form of blessedness, which is the perfect good, the reward of virtue, and the ultimate end of desire. Aquinas' political project, therefore, is centered on the ideal of a Christian king who is a great-souled man and therefore possesses all the virtues necessary for the reward of blessedness. Yet this ideal remains incredibly difficult to obtain. In fact, Aquinas raises the possibility that the only one who fulfills such a description is Jesus Christ. 
To follow this argument, however, requires reading Aquinas' use of scripture in a way that is different than its apparent meaning. For example, interpreting Ezekiel 37 verse 24, Aquinas writes, And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. It is clearly shown by this verse that it is the nature of kingship that there should be one who rules, and that he should be a shepherd who seeks the common good and not his own gain. Although this verse appears to be endorsing kingship through an appeal to the rule of king, a moment's reflection reminds us that by the time of Ezekiel, David has come and gone, that David that is spoken of one and can be none other than Christ. Likewise, Aquinas uses Isaiah 40 verse 6, Glory is like the flowers, and the flowers fall, to apparently disprove glory and honor as the proper reward of the king. Yet when the verse is considered within the context of the whole biblical chapter, one discovers that it does not endorse both the glory and rewards when they are provided by God. One also discovers that the chapter's detailed account of God's kingship confirms our interpretation of the regno. Aquinas thus said, Because the enjoyment of divinity is an end which a man cannot attain through human virtue alone, but only through divine virtue, according to the apostle, at Romans 6 verse 23, The grace of God is eternal life. It is not human but divine rule that will lead to us to this end. And government of this kind belongs only to that king who is not only men but also God, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, who by making men sons of God has led them to the glory of heaven. Of course, while the heavenly king spoken of may indeed be the Christ, Christ does not simply rule. He rules through his church on earth. The administration of this kingdom therefore is entrusted not to earthly kings but to priests, so that spiritual and earthly things may be kept distinct, and in particular to the supreme priest, the successor of Peter, the vicar of Christ, the Roman pontiff, to whom all the kings of the Christian peoples should be subject as if to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To summarize, according to the Regnus political teaching, kingship is the best form of government because it is the least corruptible and because it allows for the unity required to the proper pursuit of the common good. Rulers in themselves, however, lack the capacity to rule in a way that fulfills the true definition of the king. They rule according to their earthly desires, a failure that stems from a dependence on man rather than God. Thus, because men lack the ability to rule in complete accordance with common good, they must submit their rule to the church who will direct them in a way benefiting and befitting through kingship. We may therefore conclude that Aquinas' remarks regarding the possible corruption of a magnanimous ruler are in fact directed toward the church rather than the earthly king. A priest or pope that replaces his care for the glory of God with the glory of men threatens to destroy the freedom from men's opinions that allow him to properly direct those in his care toward the common good. The regno concerns the church at least as much as it concerns the king of Cyprus.
Aquinas therefore attempts to lay the groundwork for the best form of government. This effort represents a break with traditional political philosophy because Aquinas is both more realistic and more idealistic than this tradition. Unlike this tradition, Aquinas rejects the possibility that the human rewards of honor and glory can sufficiently prevent tyranny. Unlike the moderns, however, who, when faced with this reality, simply lowered the sights of politics by founding a politics that accounted for the continuous presence of tyrannical impulses and therefore in many ways encouraged them, Aquinas attempts to create a kingship whose tyrannical impulses are checked by the church. Thus, although Aristotle believed that an account of virtuous government founded on the reward of honor represented the best political teaching, he questioned the adequacy of that teaching as a philosophic argument. Aquinas, however, by showing that the magnanimous man can rule and receive his proper reward by reference to the true king, presents an account that solves the difficulty implicitly pointed to by the ancients. In other words, although Aquinas continues in the tradition of the ancients by promoting a political philosophy that aims at the best form of government, he at the same time challenges this tradition by disputing the limits it puts on the practice of politics. It is a dispute that questions not only the political solution of the ancients, but also their claim that philosophy is the best way of life for men. Theology and the Philosopher King To show that Aquinas intends to question the life of philosophy, it is necessary to return to the beginning of the regno or on kingship, where he claims that he will show kingship in its highest form. To fulfill this calling, he will draw out the origin of a kingdom and what pertains to the king's office, according to the authority of divine scripture and the teachings of the philosophers. In other words, Aquinas claims that he will go further than joining together Aristotle's philosophy with theology. He will join philosophy with the Bible. And chapter 1 begins with Aquinas stating that in order to fulfill his aim, we must begin by explaining how the title king is to be understood. This understanding begins with Aquinas noting that man both has an end, that it is natural for him to work towards and that he needs something to guide him towards his end. Of course, the former proposition does not necessarily lead to, latter, to the latter in the sense that man may be able to direct himself to that end. The teaching of on-kingship therefore depends upon the relationship between God and politics and the implication of that relationship for philosophy. In arguing that kingship is the best form of rule and that the true king is Christ, Aquinas attempts to show that the true earthly king is ruled by the heavenly king. This rule, however, occurs by way of the church. Christ rules the king through the church. The church, however, in being ruled by Christ is only ruled by its understanding of Christ. It is ruled by theology. And as indicated by the deeds of Aquinas who gives advice in the manner described in the Regno by way of his writing of it, since the church is ruled by theology, it is also ruled by the theologian. In other words, Aquinas transforms the teaching of the philosopher king into the teaching of the theologian king. And following Plato, who equates politics and the soul, Aquinas indicates 
that the soul is properly ruled by Christ. In conclusion, Aquinas argues that reason informed by faith should rule the rule and the soul politically. This equates to having a ruler who will listen to theology. In making this argument, Aquinas not only presents an alternative to the political philosophy offered by the ancients, he suggests an alternative way of life to the philosopher. Put another way, his account of politics attempts to prove that reason governed by faith is more reasonable than the reason adhered to by the tradition of ancient political philosophy. Thus, by providing a critic of ancient political philosophy's idealism, Aquinas attempts to refound politics upon God. It is a refounding that elevates politics in a way that attempts to allow for the fulfillment of the life of politics and the life of philosophy without ignoring the dangers posed to these aims by tyranny. Ansuma Theologica Summa Theologica is divided into three parts. Each part contains more subdivisions. Part 1 is mostly about God. Aquinas attempts to prove that God exists and answers many questions devoted to the subject. He asserts that the notion that God exists is proof itself that He exists and demonstration of that fact is a possibility which Aquinas intends to do. He later offers his proofs on God's existence. Simply put, objects are in motion at any one given time. These objects are in motion because they were set in motion by something else. When tracing back motions to infinity, the beginner of motion must have been God. He has a similarly argued point about causes and existence. There must have been a beginning of existence and a beginning cause. Therefore, God must be the beginning cause and existence. The world itself has good and bad and somewhere in between. If there are varying degrees of both, there must be a supreme goodness, which could only be God. Due to Aquinas' previous arguments, the cause of all things that exist and all things good must also be because of God. In the universe, there are sentient and non-sentient objects, each of which seem to operate for a purpose. It is clear through observance that these objects did not fulfill their purpose by luck or chance. Therefore, they must be operating under a plan. Whatever guides them must have some sort of all-knowing and all-powerful intelligence. Obviously, this must be God. Since Aquinas proved God's existence in his terms here, he continues by talking about the features of God. God is all-knowing, perfect, omnisciently intelligent, and supremely good. God is a creator. And Aquarius acknowledges that God created heaven, earth, angels, and demons. He also ultimately created man on the last day of creation. Part 2 of Summa Theologica focuses on man and his purpose on earth. Overall, man's purpose on earth is to be happy. To be happy, man must follow ethical rules and responsibilities delineated by God. Aquinas acknowledges that perfection by man is unobtainable. Therefore, it was necessary for God to help in man's pursuit of perfection, which is why he created Christ. Man is defined by his soul and intellect, which for Aquinas are one in the same. Intellect is a part of the soul, because reason is inherent within the soul. Despite this, he does recognize 
that man's entire existence is not solely based on rationality. Part 2 continues by defining man's intellect. For example, our intellect consists of phantasms or mental images. When man thinks of a corporeal object, a phantasm develops in his head. Therefore, our intelligence is not just limited to the corporeal. Man is capable of imagining the concept of infinity, but will ultimately be incapable of fully understanding infinity. The mind can figure out cause and effect to a certain extent, which man can then use to try and attempt to understand God on a deeper level. Reaching happiness is the goal of man for which he must use his intelligence. Unlike animals, man possesses reason. Therefore, he must have a purpose for that reason. Happiness, according to Aquinas, does not come from earthly ideas or good. Wealth and fame are irrelevant when it comes to the supreme happiness. Because God is the ultimate good. He is the ultimate source of happiness. Man can only be supremely happy if he fully understands the divine. Unfortunately, man is unable to fully understand God until he is one with God, which is in debt. Therefore, man's goal is life is to try and understand the divine essence to the best of his ability. It is an imperfect happiness. But by using ethical guidelines and an effective effort of will and contemplation, man's purpose can be ultimately met. Happiness will be awarded to the virtuous in the next life as it is next to impossible in this life. Aquinas continues part 2 by discussing certain virtues and sins. Faith and hope are discussed along with prudence and temperance. He also discusses gifts often given by the grace of God such as prophecy. Faith and love are ultimately the highest moral principle to ultimately understand and know God. But those two must be in tandem. Perfect love in God is not possible without true faith. Man must harness his intellect to understand love to breed faith. After faith is obtained, only then can man truly love God. The final part of Summa Theologica focuses on Christ. Christ is the mediation between God and man. Man's potential became perfect within Jesus. All the perfection of faith and love that man could theoretically grasp became possible in Jesus. All of Christ's sacrifices were necessary to obtain deliverance for men. He ultimately became the bridge, allowing God's forgiveness of mankind's sins, as his sacrifice came from faith and love. Aquinas also discusses the sacraments of the church. They are only spiritual because God deemed them to be spiritual. It does not go beyond that. The sacraments are beneficial in helping man receive God's grace. He also briefly discusses the apocalypse, where nothing will be living. But from that God will build a new heaven and earth. Aquinas touches on many points and ways to reach God's divinity in his work. To Aquinas, his work summarized the meaning of life through God in all aspects. Although unfinished, his work is definitely prolific. This has been your podcast lecture series in PS202, Introduction to Political Theory. Thank you and be well.